You're listening to The Progressivist Podcast, and I'm your host, Joe Lorenz. Join me each episode as we discuss how to use our collective voices to activate a progressive world founded upon climate, civil, and racial justice. Now, today's guest is the very wonderful Makad Brooks. Makad is an award-winning actor as well as producer and writer known in the entertainment industry for his raw and refined talent. Now, earlier this year, we saw Makad star as Jackson Briggs, a cybernetically enhanced super soldier and leader of Earthrealm in Warner Brothers' highly anticipated action-adventure film, Mortal Kombat. And... Incidentally, he was completely awesome in it. Now, as well as Mortal Kombat, he's been in a whole host of brilliant films, including Tyler Perry's A Fall from Grace, as well as Nobody's Fool, and he shone on the television front in Desperate Housewives, True Blood, and most recently in the DC comic superhero action-adventure series Supergirl. Born and raised in Austin, Texas, McCard grew up excelling at academics and sport and anything you could throw at him, but always had a deep-rooted passion for the arts. In fact, he gave up a full scholarship to Yale in order to hone his craft. A natural-born storyteller, we are so excited to have McCard on the show today, where, amongst many other things, we're going to talk about racial and intersectional equity in the entertainment industry and how what we watch on the screen has the potential to bolster equality, empathy, and all the good things. So welcome, Makad. Thanks for having me. I really appreciate this. Kicking off, in late 2017, we saw the Me Too movement, the social movement against sexual abuse and sexual harassment, and it swept through the entertainment industry following the exposure of widespread sexual abuse allegations against former Hollywood heavyweight film producer and now convicted sex offender Harvey Weinstein. More than two years later, following the tragic and horribly needless death of George Floyd on May 25th in 2020, we saw a really brief period of racial accountability in the entertainment industry and the publishing industry, as well as in corporations and across some campuses. At points in time, the media even called this a quote, quote, racial reckoning. Um, yep, Willie and I were talking about that, and that's nonsense because it's simply a racial epiphany had by white people. Um, obviously, we can't effectively increase racial equity without talking about and accepting white supremacy. We can't fix anti-black, anti-brown racism that underpins policies and decisions that drive things like mortgages, hiring, education, transportation grids, the increase of wealth, etc., without eradicating white supremacy. So all that being said, my first question to you is, how overdue is the entertainment industry in having an actual racial awakening or even an intersectional reckoning where civil and climate justice would come into play too? And if or when this actual reckoning occurs, how would it look and what would it mean for the industry, for actors, but also viewers and fans? That's a hell of a first question and a hell, a hell of a multi-faceted question. Let me answer it piece by piece. I think America is overdue for a racial awakening. I don't know what a reckoning looks like, but I know what an equality awakening looks like. Words mean things. And I think that people are very much caught up in what, what reckoning could mean. And I think that's why they, they shy away from it. That's why maybe it's, it turns some people off. Maybe that's why they're afraid of it. So I think that there was an epiphany. There was a moment of, of Gnostic understanding, the knowing of someone else's experience. That was felt, I think, when the average American was stuck in their house because of quarantine. And all of a sudden, people who don't feel oppressed by their government all of a sudden started to understand what oppression felt like. There's this unseen thing that we can't describe and we can't really put our finger on exactly what it is, but it's this concept almost like a virus is almost like a, a living concept, right? It's like this thing that you can't see, but it can infect you. As people were stuck in their houses, they realized that I'm safer in my house and they got into fight or flight. And um, that was sustained for quite some time. Like you, you saw how people were behaving. They were fighting over fucking toilet paper. Mm. And that brought out the worst in some people. And they knew that if they left their house, they could fall ill or even die. And that was a real feeling and a real fear that people had who never had that feeling of fear. Then George Floyd happened. And it's not the death of George Floyd. It's, it's, it's the murder or the, or the execution, the, mm. the public execution of George Floyd happened. 
And that happened while all these people were in their homes and already in fight or flight. And then they looked at their black friends, their colleagues, their neighbors, their loved ones, and said, wow, you always feel like this, don't you? Or there's, there's moments in, throughout the year where you feel like this, right? Whenever there's a racially charged or politically motivated uh, you know, violent attack on blackness and black joy and black life and, and quality of, of, of life, we, we do go through a, a flight or fight response. And I think that a lot of the world actually was feeling what that felt like unrelated to racial tensions because they were quarantined, because there was something unseen, unexplored, floating around in the ether that could kill them. Well, not only did we have to worry about that, which is a real fear, we also had to worry about this unforeseen, un, unforgiving and very illogical conceptual entity that, that drives behavior that might cause a cop to kill me if I leave the house. And I think that people started to understand, okay, well, we can't have people living in fight or flight several times a year. That, that, look how we acted. We started trying to kill each other over toilet paper. <laughs> and when I think when you see that, when you understand someone else's experience, when you're put in it, when the world says no, you got to sit here. You got to be in this fight or flight. You got to you got to be afraid. You got to move differently in this world because there's something. There's a threat outside. Here we are understanding someone else's experience who is unrelated to me. And I think that that's the beginning of a reckoning, if you want to call it that. That's the beginning of human equity consciousness awakening. Human equity consciousness awakening. That's brilliantly put. So let's talk more about that awakening in your industry. In March of this year, management consulting firm, the big old McKinsey and Company, in collaboration with um, a group called Blacklight Collective, which is a coalition of black leaders, artists and executives who work in varied capacity across the film and television industry, they released a study called Black Representation in Film and TV, The Challenges and Impact of Increasing Diversity. Now, right. among many other pieces of information, the research showed that Emerging Black actors receive significantly fewer chances early in their careers to make their mark in leading roles compared with white actors, and they have a lower margin of error. It also publicized that unless at least one senior member of production is Black, then Black talent is largely shot out of critical roles within cast or crew. Now, you have obviously had a wonderfully successful career, but can you relate to and or talk about these findings? And if you do relate, would a racial awakening within the entertainment industry and externally even you know with the areas of teaching things such as critical race theory do you think that would change the type of roles for you or other black people other indigenous people other people of color all the rest of it i have lived uh what the mckinsey report is uh eloquently stating that there is an opportunity deficit for black creatives 100 hmm. percent I heard a, a figure, a ratio, when I came into, into Hollywood, like, you know, 20 years ago, I was talking to an actor who's older than me, and he was like, it's tough. It's really tough. And I was like, oh, you know, and I, I, I had these, uh, these ideas that like, okay, just, the, it's the best guy, like the best person gets the job, right? Mm. You know? And he was like, well, kind of, but like, what if you can't even get in the room? They don't want to see people like you. And I'm like, what do you mean? He's like, listen, you know, Black people are 15% of the country, more or less, right? So that's like one out of every six, one out of every seven people are black. One out of every 20 roles is written for us. And I was like, yeah, come on, man. And as I got in the business, he was right. We are very underrepresented on camera and it doesn't translate to real life. And I think that we have to demand better, not only uh, from uh, media, but we also from ourselves. When I first got to Hollywood, I was competing against rappers mm -hmm. for role, right? For the most part. And for the most part, rappers got those roles. Um, I even got asked if I could rap in several auditions where rapping was not a prerequisite for the job uh, by white and black casting directors. That's weird. It's racist. Yes. And, and racism is weird. You're right. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's fucking weird. Yeah. Make that make sense. Like, oh, you're a female going for this role. Can you cook? Like, uh, right. 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 I thought, I thought I was playing a commando in this fucking role. Why do I need to cook? Yeah. But, but can you cook though? Yeah. 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 How's your hair and curlers, darling? But 
we're great in the scene, but how's your mac and cheese? Yes, exactly. Um, <laughs> um, I was also asked a lot if I could dance and hmm. there was no dancing in the movie or the show or whatever. I was like, this is interesting. Weird, um, again. So as that, then that sort of fizzled out. Then um, we got to a place where there just wasn't much for us as, as, as particularly as, as, uh, as black men in Hollywood for a little while. Hmm. And then got to a place where Hollywood sort of had this awakening about black movies doing well, black uh, creatives being really good at their jobs. And, and, and like you said, having, having a, a very high success ratio once we get the opportunity, because like mm. once we get the opportunity, like we don't fucking, we don't fuck up. We know better. We're not, we're not gonna get that opportunity again. You know, there's a lot of, lot of people you can point to who are, are non-black people who, if the opportunity deficit was there for them, they, I, I don't know if, if their careers would be the same. Right, they fuck up regularly. Some, some of them regularly and royally. What I've started to understand is like when I say we have to demand better, and which is why I'm getting more into into producing and creating, not not just vehicles for myself, but, mm. but for Hollywood period and, and, and for the public period, is because I started to notice another trend that was happening, which was that even if they're telling stories about African American heroes or African American people in history or African American activists who were fighting for racial equality in America. Mm. Many times those roles go to black British people. There's an opportunity deficit, even with African-Americans playing African-Americans. America is very entrenched in the investment of proving the lie. And the lie is that they have devalued black Amer African-American culture right. in yep. such a way that if we ever break through, and when we do break through, America has mud on its face. And I think that what they, what America has tried to do, now I know, and it's, there's empirical data on this, what America has tried to do and failed time and time and time again, is to prove that black people are inferior mm. and that we can't be trusted to live in this neighborhood. We can't be trusted to hold this job. We can't be trusted with that amount of responsibility. We can't be trusted with that money. So they, we have to bomb Tulsa. You can't be trusted mm. with, you can't be trusted with this prosperity. You can't be trusted with this affluence. You can't be trusted not making people feel uncomfortable when we're telling your own story. So it's almost like, if you look at the fact that you are telling stories about African-American heroes, people who've put their lives on the line and, uh, and their families' lives on the line, my ancestors. And then you tell the stories and then you go across the ocean to get the people to play those people. I'm not complaining. Mm. I'm just saying it's interesting. Not that it doesn't happen to white actors as well as white American actors as well, because there's a lot of Australian people, a lot of uh, British people who are working in Hollywood. But you don't really see us getting the opportunity to, to play us. America has trouble looking at itself in the mirror. We're not the only country in the world that's perpetuated multiple genocides. We're not the only country in the world that's had a system of violent apartheid and violent oppression. We're not the only empires in the world who've done that. However, we are one of the few empires in the world who has not acknowledged it. And America refuses, as Jung might say, to look at their own shadow work. So I'm interested to hear your thoughts on whether you think fans or viewers unconsciously reinforce sexism and racism or any type of bigotry in the types of entertainment that we actually consume. That is, are we, the viewers, responsible for pushing for equality in entertainment? I think that we all can be better at uh, understanding the internalization of inequality. We were all born in a, in a colonialist, industrialized, uh, capitalist environment. So because of that, certain things come with that. And we, we were given a, we talk about CRT, you know, critical race theory, mm. but we already, we already have CRT, which is Confederate race theory. Mm. Um, I grew up and went to a, a school called Lee Elementary, which was named after Robert E. Lee. Mm. 
and my brother and I got in trouble because we, we refused to sing the school song, talking about how he was uh, generous and kind and and charming and all these different things and such a fair man. And, but yet, yet and still he wanted my ancestors enslaved or dead. When we talk about what, what an audience's responsibility is, I don't think that those things can be divorced from the society in which they're raised. Mm. The society in which American audiences are raised was a society not even built on racism, but built on the industrialization of commerce. And the industrialization mm. of commerce was inherently racist because it used slave labor. So you can't really divorce racism from the American exceptionalism or the mm. success of what America has come to be. It became a very successful country because it didn't pay its workforce. Right, and it was ruthless, ruthless white right. men just right. being assholes. I mean, listen, it was, it was, that's, you said it. And yeah. so I'm JP Morgan. Let me kill people. Hey, and, um, <laughs> and get away with it. Yeah. And um, Kyle Rittenhouse and the beat goes on. And so, and like, you have to look at like, I, I, I never try to blame anybody for, for, for not being better than the circumstances in which they were raised. Mm. And I'm more of about looking at solutions than challenges, right? I'm more about uh, finding a common ground than I am about uh, critic criticism. So mm. I, I, I would say that all of us have to take a look inside of ourselves and go, where is it that I accept inequality? Right. Where is it that I, I uh, perpetuate ideas that may no longer serve uh, the, the, the larger culture, mm. right? Um, and I think that all of us have to take a look inside of ourselves and go, why is it when I see someone on screen, because I do, mm. I notice their race? Mm. Why is that? Mm. Hmm. Is, is it pertinent for me to notice their race? Maybe. Yeah. Maybe it's part of the story. Maybe it's part of the movie. Right. But if it's not, then why do I notice it? Yeah, I, I have been guilty of that many times that I wonder, was that, it's an Asian man. And I go, was that role written for an Asian man, I wonder? And then I think to myself, why do I give a shit? He, he's playing, you know, and I don't give a shit, but the fact that I wonder is racist. The, the, well, the, I, don't think it, the, I don't think it's racist. I think it's indoctrinated into the space-time that you were born into. Right. I like that better. <laughs> there's, nothing, there's nothing you can do. Like, listen, you would have to be, this, you would have to be the anomaly. Mm. Not to think that. Mm. And like, there's nothing wrong, but the, the, the beautiful thing is about you is that you, you can take a look at that thought process and go, wait, why am I doing that? Right. And that's where the work is. You're right. Let's talk about me. That's where the, <laughs> <laughs> what else, what else do you think about me? That's, that's, <laughs> that's where the work is. And I think that you're doing the important work and like that, that, that work of introspection, like Ram mm. Dass said, if you, if you want to help the world, help yourself, right? Like, right. Like the best I can do is help myself and, and allow that to healing to come outward. And I think that audiences have to take a look at themselves and go, am I part of the problem? Am mm. I only watching, have I watched anything with a black lead? Have I watched anything with a mostly black cast? Like, have right. I watched anything with, with, with the Latino cast? Like, have mm. I watched anything with an all Asian cast? And if, and if your answer is no, then, mm. then maybe you should examine why that is. Yeah, it's it's all very interesting. And people just get very caught in their narrow in what they think they will enjoy and they're not open to further entertainment opportunities. It makes no sense. Particularly when like the, the, the McKinsey report, you know, states it very eloquently once again. So listen, I, I'm I'm also building an app. It's the social impact, um, it's it's ESG, it's environmental social governments and governance uh, impact app. I devised a way to crowdsource kindness and incentivize it through financial gain. And uh, it'll be out next year, it's great. But what I'm learning about coding is this, a code is nothing more than an expression of an idea. So a code can be steeped in indoctrinated inequality because the person is. A lot of these questions you have, you're like, oh, well, you know, is it meant to be racist? It doesn't matter. Mm. It, it's it's code. It's the it's the code that they're inputting into their work, right? right. It's the expression right. of their own ideas. Sometimes people just don't even know that that the idea that they're expressing mm. is 
steeped in this indoctrination. Mm. So it, it's almost like, I, at least for me, looking past that challenge and onto the solution is, how do you invite people mm. to change? How do you invite them to change? Like, not, not canceling. That doesn't work. All you're doing is, is shoving somebody who could be an ally right. to the precipice of like uh, of changing themselves into something else. They could use that power against you. And that's what and that's the way Republicans play the game. Yes. They go, okay, now I got some shit on you. Now you're gonna be my bitch. Now you're yeah. gonna do what we say. Right. And like we don't play that game. We eat our own, right? And I think that the Republican side is laughing and clapping the entire time while we're doing it. Yeah. And then they're like Matt Gates, yeah, you know, push whatever agenda is on their plate. I think that we could learn something from there's there there could be a medium, mm-hmm. it could be sort of middle ground mm. where you go, okay, well, there are people who don't deserve to be in charge anymore because they've done something so bad. Right. And then there's people that you're like, okay, let's give them a graceful exit. But on that, on the way to that graceful exit, mm. they're going to do all these things. Absolutely. We need to strategize. The, the Democrats yep. or the left is just, like you said, we just eat ourselves consistently while the Republicans sit back and light another cigar and go, ah, look at them go. And they just are masters at controlling the narrative and bullshitting us, gaslighting us in front of our eyes, and we fall for it. You know, with critical race theory, this is not actually a problem. This is happening. But all the white liberal mothers in Virginia suddenly freaking out who, you know, voted for Biden, voted for Obama, call themselves liberals, call themselves Democrats. Suddenly they're voting with for Yunkin because they're afraid that their little white child is going to be taught that they're horrible from babies. It's like, honey, it's not happening. We're just falling for this nonsense. I know some really smart people right. who, I respect, who I respect very much who are worried about critical race theory in schools. Problem is, that, and, I, and, I, and I have the same conversation with them. I say, listen, you would have to understand Brown versus the Board of Education, Plessy versus Ferguson, the Dred Scott verdict. You'd have to understand these things mm. and, have some, and cast some cultural context of, of, of how these things played out in society mm. to actually even engage in critical race theory, meaning you're not five. Yes, exactly. Not 12. <laughs> no. You're not even probably 18. No. So this is this is a pre-law, pre-political uh, science yeah. uh, intention, right? It's a pretty or, high degree that you're working on to get these subjects. And frankly, if you are being taught these subjects, it's good. You know? Yeah, you're being taught these subjects in the context of how of how you can help society even itself out. Right. Critical thinking. Yeah, you've chosen civics. Yes. So this is that's what it is. And so like it's not like 11 year olds are being taught. So I, I think what's happening is this, right? We, we once again, we do have CRT in America. We have we have Confederate race theory. Mm. And it, it was the daughters of the Confederacy that were able to uh, lobby um, for decades mm. uh, to have the textbooks reflect their fathers and their grandfathers who were in the Confederate Army as heroes. Right. That's 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 the truth. That's the right. fact. Yes. Which is why I went to a school called Robert E. Lee Elementary, mm. which that's why that happened because mm. people didn't see anarchy and treason as that bad because they lobbied against the truth, mm. gave us something that wasn't the truth mm. and called it history, right? right? And I call that CRT. That's that's Confederate race. Theory. It totally so, is. So now that they're just trying to teach history, mm. which is that America was built on colonial settlerism, or, 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 or colonials. What am I, like, I can't, I can never say that phrase, colonial settler, settlism? Settlism. Um, or, settle yes, that'll, that'll work. I don't know that I've ever said colonial settlism. No, I can't say it either. Colonial settler. Settling due to colonialism. There you go. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, I, 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 that uh, genocide of the indigenous cultures here mm. and and a and a what people really really hate to put into context, but I, they call it they call it slave trade. But let's call it what it was. It was the industrialization of a child sex trafficking ring that mm-hmm. also made people work. 
it's all extremely vile. And uh, like you said, I I don't understand why people don't want to be better informed and be more conscious with these things. And as a white person, I don't understand why more white people don't embrace the concept of learning more about systemic racism, because not only does it make them better, it takes, not that I'm suggesting that we shouldn't feel guilt, but I'm saying it takes the heat off you a little bit. You know, if you want to understand it more, like you said earlier, you know, understand that you are a product of this, these things that are happening and how you're playing in that and how you're continuing to perpetuate that racism and how you act and how you vote and what you say and what you watch and what you consume, how you consume, what you buy, what you eat, everything. Learning more about these things gives everyone an opportunity to realize it's not about them. It's about everything, you know, and it's like when big governments start saying climate change is here, everyone use a metal straw. It's like, why should the onus be on the individual to battle this huge beast when it's an established systemic problem? It's right. illogical. Particularly, That's the word of the day. Particularly, particularly when it's 90% uh, of the pollution coming from corporations and or governments, right? Exactly. So it's it, it, like, I, I could not cause, is my carbon footprint will never be the size of, of, a, of a Fortune 500 company. No, I, I don't know how you would even manage it. It'd be fun yeah. trying. Yeah, I mean, it would, but like, okay. <laughs> <laughs> um, and I think that's the problem with, 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 with the racism as well, or, or let's, let's call it, let's call it systemic inequality. Hmm. Uh, that, Cause we can prove what that is, right? There's, there's, there's deliverables for what that is. Uh, and I think that 90% of that comes from the systems that are in place, hmm. uh, the structures that are in place, perhaps the indoctrination of the people behind those structures. And like 10% of it comes from society, it comes from actual people, right? right? Like, not, not, there's not a ton of it coming from my neighbor. It's not a mm. ton of it coming from, you know, the person I meet at the coffee shop. Mm. Like Americans are not racist. The system is racist. Mm. And we can learn that. I, th- I think what people do is they, you know, they, once again, they've been indoctrinated into thinking that if you don't, if you're against American history or, well, Confederate race theory, mm. if you're against what we've been taught, if you're saying America is not exceptional, then you're attacking me, mm. right? Mm. And like, this individualism. Not, right, this individualism and, and this American exceptionalism, I think has gone so, like, so we've taken individualism and made a monster out of it so much mm-hmm. <laughs> that, we think that we think that you're attacking me if you don't like apple pie. Yeah, I, as, as a foreigner, <laughs> speaking to primarily Americans on this podcast. I mean, I love America. And the first time I went there, I was like, God, everyone's so nice. Um, but yeah, it is a, it's a funny society, but really nice, much nicer than Australians. I mean, you've been to Australia, you know that Australians are assholes. Australians are great in their own way. <laughs> in their own way. True. Um, yeah, they're in their own way. Yeah. But I, I remember, yeah, the first time I landed, they were like, how are you? Oh, my God, you have a good day. I'm like, God, she really means that. She really wants me to have a good day. But, yeah, the American exceptionalism is a real thing, right? It's a funny thing to view. Um, but if that exceptionalism could be turned into something exceptional, then America mm. could be everything that it says that it is. Well, I, I think the mistake... Um, that um, a lot of Americans make is the, the lie of separation of mankind has, has never been so um, exacerbated by such a bad idea. For instance, if you think that your country is exceptional, can't be wrong. Can't learn anything. You can't right. take something from other cultures. You can't take something something from the marginalized cultures within your own culture mm. uh, and then give them credit for it or say that maybe maybe they have a point. Maybe they're right. It's like America has a collective narcissistic personality disorder. And, and, and here's the thing. I mean, like, that's why I, I, look, I look at racism as, as a mental health crisis, mm. right? In a symbiotic way, frankly, because mm. one, it's a mental health concern for the people who are suffering under the oppression. And then there's a mental health concern for the people who are perpetuating behavior. Mm. But you have to be a malignant narcissist to believe so fully that you that other people's existences are, are such a threat yes 
through your safety, your way of life, and your mm -hmm. quality of life that they must be injured. It's America's modus operandi for us to, to, to engage uh, and interact with each other and interface with each other within that context when it comes to races. But mm -hmm. what if somebody did that about people under five foot 10? What if somebody did that to, about people with, with uh, one extremity missing? Like if they had a leg missing or an arm missing, they'd be like, mm. I must hurt this person. Or I must make sure that they can't vote. Or you know, what? Like, what are you talking about? Like, right. if, if people, if, you know, if vegans did that to people who ate meat or we mm. did that to, like, it's almost like, wait, hold on. So if you were to take this scenario and you were to replace skin, mm. someone not shoes, mm. which is a, pre-existing condition <laughs> right? and you take that pre-existing condition and you move it over to anything else mm. and then you put the same behavior you'd be like that person is mentally ill You were talking about that you work behind the scenes in entertainment as well not just uh, the pretty face up front so Let's talk cli-fi. Now, cli-fi is a phrase that I am relatively new at knowing about. And so for people who don't know what it is, cli-fi or climate fiction, which is not to be confused with climate denialism, is literature or a film or television that deals with climate change and global warming. Um, it's not necessarily theoretical in nature. Cli-fi frequently includes science fiction or dystopian or utopian themes, and it can be set in the world as we know it now or in the future. But basically, it can constructs a story by imagining potential futures based on how humanity responds to the impacts of climate change. So as an actor, um, an entertainer, how do you think cli-fi can help to translate the realities of climate change to viewers? And if you think it can, should filmmakers be prioritizing cli-fi more in their lineup? I do think that film, once again, I, th I think that film does, can influence society, behavior in society. Actually, no, listen, I know that film can influence behavior in society. I've been mm. influenced by film. Uh, we all have. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and I think that there, there's also trends that you can draw a straight line from this movie came out to this happening in society, right? Yeah. Like, like the, these things happen. And so there's a, there's, a, there's a inflection point and a reflection point when it comes to media, right? But um, I think that, I think one of the issues Hollywood has when it comes to like this, the cli-fi is that it's always Armageddon. Always like, we didn't do anything fast enough, and and we did we we, we wasted our time, and now mm. we live in underwater in a cave, yes. you know, sucking <laughs> bubbles from a fish, and now we're gonna fight over this one fish that has oxygen in his stomach, and like that's the only fish we can have. That we go, it's always catastrophic, and it's always like too late. Human beings are not good at preparation. We're not. We're fantastic at solving crises. Well, where are those stories? Where are those movies? Mm. Where, where, where are the movies about the people solving the crisis? Mm. Where are the movies about the time traveler going back in time and stopping this from happening so that like we don't have global warming at all? Yeah. Where Does someone kill Henry Ford? <laughs> <laughs> sorry, Ford family. I mean, sorry. Well, I mean, or 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 uh, someone keep Nikola Tesla alive. Yeah, <laughs> right? like, that'll work. Like it's 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 these little perspective shifts of how we're telling stories, why we're telling stories, and and also understanding where we are in the human timeline of things. And mm. I'll expand, I'll expand on that. Right, I think that we're at an inflection point in life and mm. in in, uh, in in the course of human history, and I don't mean in the last couple hundred years, I don't mean last 500 years, I mean, throughout the course of human history, I think right now mm. is an inflection point. And we're gonna look back on this and go, fuck yeah, that, that was one. We have these pulses of consciousness that happen to human humankind every 500, 700 years, right? Mm -hmm. The last one we have is called the Reformation. These pulses of consciousness are always sparked by a, an advancement in technology, which causes people to change and share information differently. Uh, the last one was the printing press. First time you were able to spread information to the masses from one person. Before mm. that, for hundreds of thousands of years of human evolution, what did we do? 
um, we told stories to each other within these small tribes. And, and even if, as we built cities and kingdoms, it was still these small, uh, very insulated circles of, of learned people who were scribes, who were keeping this wisdom amongst mm -hmm. themselves in these private libraries uh, or sharing them with some monarchs sometimes, or, or mm. is a very insular uh, uh, container for wisdom. They used it to drive behavior in society. Well, the printing press changed all that. Mm. For the first time in the course of human history in the 280,000 years, it goes, nah, not so much. It's not how we spread information anymore. So within one generation, it broke up a church that was 1,500 years old. Right. <laughs> Yeah. In one generation, women got the right, uh, I, th I think they got the right to vote in, in Venice. Mm -hmm. uh, uh, they, they definitely were, were their, their lives changed because of, a, of an author named Franco, mm -hmm. who was a, was a uh, Venetian poet, uh, formerly a concubine, mm -hmm. who was very well educated and became like this, this political poet in, in, in Venice in, in the 1500s. It destroyed monarchs. It 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 pulled down governments. It mm. it caused people to change how they view the world. One generation. Mm. Because it doesn't much. take much, does it? Doesn't take much. <laughs> and so, what happened last time was there was a company called the 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 Dutch East Indian Company and the Dutch West Indian Company. They were sister sister companies, mm -hmm. and they were both in in in, in Holland and. Um, they were the first publicly traded companies. They, they were so powerful and so successful that they actually created the stock market. Now, what did these companies do? What did these companies trade? Materials and slaves. So for the first 10 years uh, of this company's existence or so, like, I, I, I might be getting the, the amount of years wrong, but it was, they, they had the doors open for a while. Mm. And what was happening was they had uh, a lot of their sailors, their privateers were coming back to, to Holland and they were, um, they were murdering each other in the streets and they were mm. having these horrible, you know, this horrible behavior that was affecting society. They were jumping ship. They were, they were AWOL. They were, the suicide rate was through the roof. It was PTSD centuries before we knew what it was. Um, it was because they couldn't live with what they were doing mm. in Africa. They were stealing, the average age of a slave was 15 years old. So they were going to Africa and stealing children. And they couldn't live with themselves. So what did this company do? This company closed its doors for a year or two. It got a hold of a printing press and it started to um, pull in an academic wing to itself, right? It mm. built an academic wing to itself. It had doctors and, and mm. lawyers and, uh, and academics of the day all get together and um, put together a pamphlet. I, the, the name escapes me, but it's like Afrique Diabolique or something like that. Mm -hmm. they put this pamphlet together to save their shareholders' interests, which was to be able to go back to Africa and continue stealing children. Mm. So how did they do that? They started, they spread the myth that the African, uh, Africa, the African continent was Satan's last stronghold on the planet. And that we weren't actually kidnapping these people. What we're doing is we're actually giving them purpose. We're taking them out of a situation in which they're surely going to be consumed by the devil. Mm. And that we're giving them Jesus and we're giving them a new purpose and a new land. We can't bring them here. They're too awful. They're too inhuman. Mm. But what we can do is we can put them in this new world, right? And we can have them work that land and cultivate that land. And then we can have the bravest among us, the adventurers, take, you know, take hold and, and reign over these people, right? Mm. How Christian of them. How Christian. And that was the indoctrination that sparked the industrialization of commerce. So what we did last time with this beautiful invention called the printing press was we allowed these fictive myths to take mm. hold of our society and lead us to a direction that led, that led us to where we are now with, uh, with uh, uh, systemic inequality. So now we have an inflection point. What's the new printing press? Social media. Yeah. It's the first time. Fuck the printing press. It's the first time you can speak to 100,000 people at once. Yeah. You know, something happens in a tiny village in the outskirts of Ukraine and boom, it's on the other you side of the world. An hour later. Yeah. And so that wasn't, that's never, ever been possible. Mm -mm. The same way that when Martin Luther, uh, uh, you know, start, started the, uh, the, the Reformation, 
he 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 held this here. I got a book somewhere. Hold on. <laughs> <laughs> so he held this, and he's like, "Wow, this is amazing!" All of a sudden, this wisdom that that men hold or women hold or whoever holds doesn't have to be just in these insular sort of learned circles debated upon mm. and then rationed out to the public right. as it serves those elite groups. Mm-hmm. And all of a sudden, I can tell the truth right. with the machine. Well. That got commandeered by dark forces. And so whatever that was, we had a chance to unite the world at that point. And I think right now with social media, we're we're at the next pulse of consciousness. And if we wake up, we are going to be able to to affect change, meaningful change for the next 500 to 1,000 fucking years. And I think that's the important thing that Hollywood has to recognize. It's the important thing that I think that you and your husband do recognize. You're doing the work Hmm. that Fred recognizes, that I recognize. We are in this pulse of consciousness. We have the new printing press. And are we going to let disinformation, which is what happened last time, commandeer that delivery system of new technology or insert new code into it? And that's up to us. Right, so we have 10 quick answer questions that we ask, and it's just for a bit of levity and who are you behind the beanie? All right, so I know this one, but anyway, home city. Austin, Texas. Favorite city? That also might be Austin, Texas, but then, then again, I love New York. I love Paris. I'll tell you what, I love Earth. I love Earth, man. It's a fucking fantastic place. It's good. I, I'm yet to find a better planet, to be honest. <laughs> Um, define your personal style or attitude in three words. Eclectic, solution-driven. Mm, I like it. Okay, what is your favorite quote or words to live by? I have a mantra. Oh, give it to us. Everything is perfect. I like that. And do you say this often? Every day. It works. Because, because you see the perfection in the design. All right. What is the favorite aspect of your work? I got to say there's probably three things. One is I, as an actor, I get to be so many different types of people. I was talking to my wife uh, yesterday or two days ago. We're talking about, um, you know, Jax from Mortal Kombat. And I was talking about the role. I was saying him. I was separating myself. I was like, oh, no, I, I mean, like, I mean, me, I mean, me. She's like, no, no, you're right. Like, you're a different person when you play him. That's fun. Yeah, it's, it is fun. And I, I get to go there. And mm. I think that's one of the cool things about being an actor is that you get to go to places where in your own psyche, in your own trauma, in your own unresolved patterns, where you go, I can use that or I can enhance this part of my personality. So that's one thing I love. Uh, the, the other thing I love is when I meet uh, fans who um, the work that, I, that I've helped co-create has really affected them in a positive way. There's no better feeling than that. I'd say the third thing is, if I can toot my own horn a little bit, is because I have been successful, I had, I've had a, a lot of time on my hands. I didn't have to work, and I was mm. able to figure out who I was, right? Mm. It wasn't like I'm always having to work, 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 work. It was like I worked a lot, really, 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 really hard, and I still do. Mm. I, still work, I still work hard, but I work smarter. I don't work as much, but the thing I was able to figure out about self between like age 30 and 40 Hmm. most people figure out it in 80 90 i got a lot of good living left to do very nice and on to the next question in this wonderful life you have left to live what is your drink of choice water the only thing that matters do you ever upgrade to sparkling i like to live a little darling and have sparkles in mine when i can i love sparkling water ah it's the best bit of lemon who needs anything? Lime. 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 Okay. If I, go to, if I go to a restaurant, it's always sparkling. It's good. You feel like you're kind of doing something too when you get a bit of sparkling. Yeah, let's lash out. Let's get sparkling. If I am going to drink, it's a vodka soda. Nice. Yeah, I'm a red wine girl. I mean, to me, wine doesn't count. Like it's like. Oh, good. Okay. Um, what's your favorite movie or book? Favorite movie or book? I've seen too many movies mm. to have a favorite. I, I got a whole list. I've, I think I've read too many books to have a favorite. Oh, well, you know, I, I probably do have a favorite book, Sapiens. And if I had to pick a movie, man, Mortal Kombat. 
Good answer. Very good answer. Where am I now? Okay, this one's a goodie. Three people you want at your dinner party and why? And they can be dead, alive, or fictional. So you and your husband? That's oh, two. Or- oh, we could be one. Don't worry. He doesn't count. We'll okay, just be so one. Other than you guys, I'll pick three. Okay. Um, three people I could have at my Amelia Earhart. Oh, that's a goodie. I want to know what happened. Like, I've <laughs> always, you know, I'm like, yo, yeah. I've always wanted to know what the fuck happened. Right. Um, Harriet Tubman. Mm-hmm. I just want, I would like to host a dinner to honor her, frankly. Yeah. Um, just what she was able to achieve uh, as a woman and as a black person at that time, just incredible. And maybe Marcus Aurelius. Oh, that's a good one. God, he'd be a pain though, wouldn't he? Well, I think I, I think he'd be fun fun to debate. He'd be fun, maybe with a bit of wine and, and Harriet and at the table sorting him maybe out. Maybe he'd bring his nephew Caligula and the, and after, and the after party would be dope. <laughs> yeah, and a couple of Caligula's sisters. Yeah, Great, yeah. be good fun. Well, Caligula never rolls alone, you know that. <laughs> oh, that's a good answer. I don't know that Harriet would have any time for Caligula. I don't think so either, but you never know. Harry, Harry, it might have, you know, you never know. Yeah, and we'll give Caligula, he wasn't dumb. We'll give him that. A bit misguided, but there was a brain in there somewhere. So maybe he would have been fascinating. Caligula wasn't invited. It was Marcus Aurelius. That was, yeah, uh, sorry, that's right. <laughs> that's right. Yeah, let's keep yeah. it small, intimate. Marcus, it is. Got it, got it. All right. When you're not working, we'll find you where? Working. Good, because you love what you do. I love what I do. I had, a, I had a near-death experience when I was 28 years old. I was in a, in a hospital and I mm. had an amoebic antimicrobial parasite, which is a water-based parasite that, that I got in Africa and they didn't mm. know what was wrong with me. So they gave me a bunch of stuff I didn't need, tests I didn't need um, and medicine I didn't need. And mm. I had an allergic reaction finally to the medicine that they gave me uh, to combat the parasite. And that, that crushed my vitals. Um, and I saw life for what it was and what it wasn't mm. at 28. Mm. At 29, I had I, the same day, one mm. year later, 29 years old, I was in India, and I had this sort of accidental past life regression experience in Whoa. which this holy man read a scroll uh, that was a few thousand years old with my name on it and my life's purpose. What? In my last life as well. One year later to the day, I was in Atlanta. This is all May 20th. Mm. I was in Atlanta and I was minding my own business. I was at a stoplight and a lady hit me going head on uh, 65 miles an hour. And I went to a coma. And it was very similar to the, to, the, to the NDE. One year later to the day, May 20th, 2012, I did ayahuasca for the first time, which is a, um, a psychedelic plant medicine that's found in the Amazon jungle that flips the relationship of a spiritual uh, the body consciousness from spiritual to, uh, sorry, from, from, from material to spiritual. Mm. So most of walking around like 90% material, 10% spiritual. Mm. However, that's not the real ratio that we have. Like mm. your body, 10% of your being. Mm. The other is 90% your soul. Like, mm. like even in spatial, the spatial relationship, the, the, the body's in the center of, it's like the seed mm. energy that you have. And, and I saw that very clearly in the NDE, and I saw that very clearly in the coma, and mm. I saw that clearly in, uh, in uh, ayahuasca many times. Mm. I presume you picked the date on purpose to do it, did you? You just kind no. of, oh. Nope. That worked out. So okay. I worked out. I didn't, we're I didn't we're calling you on the 19th. Make sure. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's, it's my spiritual birthday, and, and I've had incredible revelations uh, mm. because of what has happened to me on those days. Mm. Uh, very thankful for, the, for those, those days. But I, I, I guess um, to answer the question, I kind of see life as this experience in which it's about being born, evolving, which is learning those lessons. And then while you're evolving, finding time to integrate those lessons mm. and then growth. So for me, when you say, what, what are you going to be doing if I don't find you working? And I say mm. work, um, it's because that's what I'm here to do. Right. I'm 
I'm here to I'm here to philosophize about systems and change systems. Mm. I'm here to I'm here to to find solutions to age old problems. Like mm. I know that sounds lofty, but I'm no, here I understand. It. It's your purpose, and you feel it, and you do it. Yeah. What's yeah. my mission? Yeah. Which gives me which gives me yes, purpose. yeah, and. And my per so my purpose is acting. My purpose is directing. My purpose is producing. My purpose mm. is creating apps. Mm. Uh, my purpose is impact investing. So all these are purposes under mm. the mission of changing the system. Mm. And um, and I all of those that. things are essentially storytelling. Listen, that's exactly what I was about to say. Oh, it's sorry for interrupting. No, 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 it's fine. No, it's great. Like I, I have goosebumps because you, you're you're reading you know, my truth that gives me hope and that I'm not crazy, right? Like, you're not. I was, was going to say that everything that I do, all those purposes are wrapped mm. up in one storytelling. My delivery system of how I can change systems is through storytelling. When I'm not working, I'm working. I've got one last question for you. Lastly, what is your advice for someone looking to improve how they consume their entertainment? Be adventurous. Get out. Get out of your safety zone, your, your comfort zone. Um, be adventurous. Like some of the best movies that some of my favorite movies I've ever watched were like, you know, um, Blake Edwards. You know, oh my uh, god, like we are Victoria. the same person, Victor Victoria. I'm sorry, we're the same person. <laughs> <laughs> and and as a cis black male, that's probably not what people expect. I, I have a, a huge affinity for Audrey Hepburn because I was in film school and I was I was exposed to things that I would never have watched on my own. Mm. Man, like I, you know, and so I, I think that like once people can get out of their comfort zone when it comes to entertainment, not just watch stuff where, well, those people look like me. So I want mm. to feel comfortable watching like, no, like watch stuff with, with you know, watch the foreign films, watch mm. films people who don't look like you mm. try to understand other people's experiences take yourself you maybe use movies in a way that people used to use books because mm. nobody really reads anymore mm. so once you get you can gain experience by watching other people live their lives Thanks for listening to The Progressivists Podcast. Today's show is hosted by Joe Lorenz and brought to you by The Progressivists, a social movement dedicated to climate, civil, and racial justice. If you've enjoyed today's show, please remember to follow or subscribe to The Progressivist Podcast. Follow us on Instagram, or if you'd like to learn more about today's guest, please head to our website, www.theprogressivist.com.